Welcome to Hard Truths by Vertex. This is where we peel the layers and uncover raw, unobvious industry insights and venture capital knowledge across Southeast Asia and India. We interview some of the world's top leaders in tech, innovation and capital formation to hear the stories of enlightening discoveries as well as aha moments to help early stage entrepreneurs navigate their building journey. If you like what you hear, please click follow or subscribe. Hi, I'm Elise Tan and I'm your host for this episode of Heart Truth by Vertex Podcast. Today, our episode is really special because firstly, this is the first time we are doing it during a live event. And secondly, we have a really special guest, Jack Selby. Jack Selby is a member of the PayPal Mafia. Jack Selby is a venture investor and independent film director. He joined PayPal as an early employee and served as the Senior Vice President of Corporate and International Development. Currently, Jess Selby served as the Managing Director for Peter Thiel's family office, Thiel Capital, based in Los Angeles. I think not many of us knows that Vertex Ventures was an investor in X.com, which later merged with Confinity. Confinity is a competitor of X.com and has a money transfer product called PayPal. After the merger, X.com was renamed PayPal, and this is what we know as the pioneer in digital payments. So we hope you will enjoy today's episode with Jack Selby. So um, I will first start with, you know, what brings you to Singapore? So it's great to be back in Singapore. Uh, thank you all for, for hosting me. I ran the corporate international operations at, at PayPal, and our uh, Asian headquarters was based here because of Vertex. Uh, we had Vertex and Telesec and DBS and SingPost and SingTel and basically every corporate investor you could have back in 2000, 2001. So I used to spend a lot of time here. And the reason why I'm back, I came back briefly last November for there was a big Bloomberg event and there was a, a Singapore FinTech week. Uh, so I was here very briefly, but I realized we need to spend a lot more time here because uh, this place seems to be booming. So uh, I flew in this morning on the, the red eye from New York. Thank you. No, Singapore is quite a distance from uh, the U.S., so why, um, how, how did, how did you know, you, uh, PayPal know about Temasek, you know, the investors in Singapore? Uh, sure. So uh, as part of our international strategy, we wanted to find banking partners in all the different markets uh, that we first wanted to explore. And so we had five or six large banking partners uh, in Europe. Uh, we had a banking partner in Japan, and then obviously we had DBS as our banking partner here. And so Singapore, to its immense credit, uh, was very proactive in reaching out to us. I think the group is called EDVI, um, but they were very proactive in helping us uh, find an office and meet other people and just different ways to collaborate. And so those folks were really the ones that helped kind of drive the process and helped us establish a very large presence here. Yeah, good, good to know. Uh, we are proud to have supported X.com and then PayPal. So, you know, since we have started with kind of like the year 2000s era, so I want to kind of uh, compare the then and now, right? So I think you, you have been through quite a few cycles. You mentioned recently three business cycles, right? Since then, um, lots of um, experience from both the entrepreneur and the investor side. So how would you compare, you know, the year 2000 and now, how, what were, what are different? Yeah, so I, I turned 50 next month, and so I'm old enough to have seen uh, a few cycles at this point, and it's, uh, it's not different this time. And so, 
For us, when we were doing PayPal, actually the majority of the time of our company's existence was after the dot-com crash in March of 2000. And actually, we closed in our Series C, uh, which is a $100 million round, which doesn't seem like much now, but it was quite significant back then. We closed on it literally the Friday before the market crashed. Oh. that following uh, Monday. So we got very lucky. Uh, so the way it's different now is that the cycle is definitely turning down. Uh, this is one of the hardest capital raising markets I've ever seen. It might be the hardest. And I think it's particularly difficult because unlike 2000, coming out of the great financial crisis in 2008, you essentially had 13 years of uh, very easy, almost free money. And so that easy free money has kind of gummed up the works. And so what would have otherwise probably been more of a B-type correction and we'd already be seeing green shoots in an upside cycle turn. All this free money essentially is going to up the works where it's more of a U than a B. And I think because of that, it's going to be more of an extended recovery as the cycle hopefully turns up soon. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I'm curious, so in the year, maybe 1990s, so that is the time where we don't have iPhone, you know, we don't have smartphones, we are still on dial-up internet, can you imagine? <laughs> we have 250 million internet users on Earth, and now we have 5.5 over billion. So, you know, how did you get to know PayPal um, or X.com, um, you know, to actually want to join and, um, you know, all this sending the money through the internet is such a new thing. So what, what uh, bring you to this? So I met Peter Thiel when I was 24 years old. We both had a background in the currency uh, business. So Peter was working for a large bank in New York trading currencies. And my first job out of college was working for effectively a currency hedge fund. And so we crossed paths through a common friend. And the thing that I knew when I met Peter, I met a really, really, really smart person. And I vowed to hold on for dear life. And so you fast forward 25 years later, literally, he's still holding on by a string. But it was one of the luckiest, most fortunate things. Most people don't get the ability to bump into someone like Peter Thiel or be able to work with Elon Musk and the list goes on and on at 24. And so I just thank my lucky stars that I realized that and I, I've been still holding on ever since. I'm sure you are you are really humble. I'm, I'm sure you're really capable as well, you know, to be in the circle of all these um, awesome entrepreneurs. So I I just want to, you know, kind of take it step by step. So, you, you know, you mentioned about how you have uh, met um, Peter Thiel and the other founders. And then um, we want to kind of know, you know, how was it like before the merger? between X.com and PayPal. We know that at the time there were quite a few coverage, you know, about what happened before and after. So how was it like being an, uh, an employee there? Yeah, so Jumat described it very well. So we were running PayPal, Elon was running X.com. This was the uh, first quarter of 2000. And it was a crazy time in the sense that we, we at PayPal were giving people $10 to sign up for the service. And so our burn rate, although it sounds pedestrian today, was in excess, I think, of $10 million per month, which back in 2000 was a lot of money. And we were back with some great investors. Nokia was our primary investor. As, as we mentioned earlier, we were enabling people to send money between Palm Pilots. And I'm sure the vast majority of people in this room are too young to even know what those things are. But they were basically personal digital assistants, which essentially was a predecessor before the advent of our iPhone or the equivalent. And then Elon was backed by Sequoia and Mike Baritz, who's arguably the most famous venture capitalist of his generation. And so we were both basically in this arms race where we were going to spend each other out of business. And, uh, and Elon, frankly, was probably 
more commonly uh, financially backed. And so our two boards came together and had kind of a meeting of the minds and effectively forced a shotgun marriage between the two companies. And they came together and uh, they were pretty different cultures also at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Was there any shift, you know, in terms of culture in order to make the merger work? Uh, what strategies were implemented better? Yeah, it was a really interesting time in the sense that when we offered, so when we started offering the email payment service, this was I think January of 2000, we went from basically no users to growing at a rate of a million new users per month. And so it was crazy. If you're selling eight babies online and you screw up an order, it's probably not that big of a deal. If you're growing at a million new customers per month and you're dealing with people's money and you screw something up, you know, the next call goes to the district attorney or the attorney general, someone in law enforcement, you can get in trouble really quickly. And before January 2000, I think we literally had something like seven or eight customer service agents in our Alonso offices. And so that wasn't going to cut it when you're going out a million new customers per month. So as an example of how we had to kind of adopt or adjust, we had a woman, a senior woman on our executive team who was from Nebraska. And so thankfully, uh, people may not know this, but Nebraska uh, is very good in the sense that people speak English in Nebraska very clearly. And there's a lot of fiber optics that cross there because it's literally in the middle of the country. So we sent Julie out and essentially rented out the local holiday inn or whatever it was. And 400 people came through the door, and we basically hired all those people that came through the door to become our new customer service team. And I think if you fast forward to today, PayPal, if they're not the largest employer in the state of Nebraska, they're in the top five or something like that. But that was an example of one of these kind of crazy adjustments that we had to make on the fly in order to continue to be successful as a business. Yeah, I can imagine. And you mentioned about how you are um, giving customers $10, you know, to, to try PayPal and how uh, the customers are growing at $1 million, uh, per per month, you know. So what? how did you get there? So the $10 was meant to really, that was really kind of the first example of viral marketing. Uh, but honestly, we stumbled into a configuration that was frankly just very lucky. So we were, we were trying all sorts of different kind of markets to figure out who, what markets would best use email payments. Because when you set up a new payment system, it's very tricky because usually there's like a chicken bag type problem. You have to both appeal to the sellers and the buyers. And oftentimes these new payment schemes appeal more to one or the other. We were very lucky in the sense that we stumbled upon the eBay market. And so the eBay market is obviously online. Yeah. It's very big, it's very dense. And most importantly, both the buyers and sellers each had a need for a better payment solution. So if you're selling a VA baby, you want to get your money as quickly as possible. So before PayPal came around, the average duration of a, uh, uh, the time for a payment to settle was like two weeks because you put a, a check in the mail, maybe it gets there, maybe it doesn't, maybe the check bounces, maybe it doesn't. So it was very complicated. And then if you're buying the VA baby, you want to get your baby baby. So both parties had an incentive for a better payment solution. And so we stumbled upon eBay. It took off like wildfire. And I think maybe the takeaway for founders here is really not just um, you know kind of growing your company organically with the resources you have, but also to look at you know maybe a platform that could use you your product to help uh, grow your product uh, more quickly. Yes. Thanks for sharing. You know you have seen um, a lot of early stage founders grow and become successful. What are some of the hard truths? that you would like to give them, as particularly for early stage founders? Advice, yeah. Sure. Um, so I think with this cycle downturn, it's kind of a mixed blessing in a sense for people that are on the allocator side of the table. So the people that have the money, that are looking to give money to young people who are entrepreneurs. You know, I, I think 
And I, and I love talking to uh, groups of young people and, and kind of address questions exactly like this in the sense that it was really hard for people on our side of the table in those 13 years after the great financial crisis when all the trees were going to the sky and everyone wanted to be an entrepreneur. So as an example, I graduated from college in 1996 and all of my classmates all wanted to be, you know, work at Goldman Sachs and be derivatives traders. Fast forward today, or those 13 years after the financial crisis, everybody wanted to be an entrepreneur. However, it became so overblown, it almost became like a game show. It's like, where do I get on the escalator? I'll get off at the top, the confetti and the balloons will drop, and I want to become a billionaire, I won the game. It's not how that works. Being an entrepreneur is not an escalator, it's more like this. And these bits down here are near-death experiences, and some people should go work at an accounting firm and start as a junior analyst and become CEO of Ernst Young in 30 years. That's an awesome, amazing career path. Being an entrepreneur is polar opposite. And some people just don't have the temperaments, uh, the constitution, so to speak, to deal with these near-death experiences because that might lead to nervous breakdowns or something else negative. And so, but that's what being an entrepreneur is like. And so some people just aren't cut out for it. So as an allocator, going back to your question, now, essentially the herd has been called significantly. So the entrepreneurs that got into startup land, uh, you know, during those 13 years, a lot of them have kind of washed out and it's kind of a Darwinian process. And so I think it's natural and I think it's frankly good because again, this is a really, really hard time to be starting a business. This is, you know, to get a balance and to be positive, this is when the next PayPal or Google or the equivalent is started. It's at the bottom of a cycle when the cycle starts to turn but it's also really hard. So I think people just need to be eyes, eyes wide open about that reality. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, are there any hard truths now, you know, for, for uh, investors, particularly in the early stage that you would like to share? So on the investor side, uh, so I help, I, you know, I work at uh, Till Capital with Peter and then I have my own fund in Arizona, Phoenix, yeah. Arizona, where I, I live. And for me as an investor, uh, I really focus, it's, it's very much the jockey, not the horse. It's all about the entrepreneur. Mm. And so, you know, when you invest in a company like a PayPal, the business plans change, you know, seven or eight times. Um, but if you invest in a bad person, however you want to define that, you really have no chance. And so trying to focus on the entrepreneur, making sure that person has the integrity and the character and the intelligence, the, the ability to think laterally, mm. that's exceptionally important. And so for me personally also, um, and this isn't a dogmatic rule, but first-time entrepreneurs, it also involves a higher degree of kind of babysitting and chaperoning. So all things being equal, I prefer an entrepreneur that had, that has tried it before, even if they fail, at least it means that they have the stars and kind of the they've gone through the experience and they learned from it, but they learned from it in so much that they want to try to do it again. Sharing that, I think um, definitely people who are less fearful of failure that there's. Um uh, also, you know, in the same category that Vertex love to look at in terms of entrepreneurs. So, um, I'm sure you have a lot of um, pivotal moments during whether it's PayPal or uh, when you're doing investments. What are some of these moments that shape you as an investor? So, uh, I'll give you an example right now in this market. Um, it's a very difficult market from a fundraising perspective. And so, if you're lucky enough to be able to find capital, you know, I've, I've had a couple of deals that have sailed away from us because the entrepreneur was too focused on dilution. Mm -hmm. And so there was one deal particular about a month ago where 
she wanted to take about 25% less capital than we strongly thought she should. And so that means she's going to be back in the market in probably less than a year, unless everything lines up perfectly, which never happens. And so I guess the point is that in this environment, if you're fortunate enough to be in a position where you can take capital, get as much of that capital as possible because this is ready daytime. And when it's rainy days, you want to have as much cash in the bank and not worry about dilution because 100% of zero is zero. And I think, you know, in Arizona, I think oftentimes our entrepreneurs don't think big enough. And so one of my favorite phrases that I borrowed from a, a buddy who's a partner at Greylock is that you have to have equal parts grit and grandiosity. And so grit is probably very clear. But grandiosity is super important in the sense that being an entrepreneur in a startup is so hard. So if you're going to go through this crazy amount of work, working 24-7 for multiple, multiple years, you might as well be rewarded for it. And again, the idea of being too small-minded in this very, very difficult capital environment, I think is a mistake. What do you think about portfolio, um, portfolio value creators, um, operating partners? Does, do you see that working well? Um, where, where, yeah. So I do. I think um, investors that are purely financial and have never been operators, and I'm obviously saying this from a biased perspective since we started PayPal, um, I think you have to have an operating background if you want to have an edge as a venture capitalist. It's not private equity where you can go to Harvard Business School and learn a bunch of numbers in finance and then just apply that uh, kind of from a road method. Venture capital is very different because you're literally building companies from scratch. So I think having an operating background, especially if you're an entrepreneur and you're looking at different capital sources, I would personally be biased. And again, it's my reflection of my background, but I would be biased in favor of someone who could give me not just money, but could give me operational expertise. Yeah, I, we totally agree. I think it's um, not just capital, being able to help the founders or the founder finding the investor, giving them help to get to the next stage or you know, all the way to exit is an important point. Yeah, so thanks for sharing all this. I think many people love to ask you, what are the emerging industry trends, especially right now at the beginning of the year? When you do panels or whatever it is, you always get asked what's the hot sector or whatever the equivalent is. Mm-hmm. The honest answer, I think, is that no one knows. Peter doesn't know. Elon doesn't know. I certainly don't know. Uh, as an example, everyone is talking about AI, which I think yeah. is justifiable, justifiable to a large extent. On that topic, for whatever it's worth, I think uh, there's essentially going to be a bifurcation between two different approaches to AI. So one approach is going to be kind of the superpowers of AI. So it's going to be the Google and the Microsoft and the Alibaba's and Sam all in and the equivalent because these very deep-pocketed groups will be able to afford the critical ingredient, which is the world-class PhD or the equivalent that is doing the artificial intelligence research. And these people are very, very, very finite number. They're probably in the thousands globally. And if you're coming from a U.S. kind of non-China perspective, it's probably in the low thousands. And so because they're so scarce, they're very expensive. And so a normal Series A startup is not going to be able to afford these people. So these superpowers are going to be the ones that kind of push the envelope for AI overall for all of us, which is great. But that's just a different realm, a different echelon that most of us are not going to touch. The other side of the bifurcation, I would argue, is going to be whereas AI is going to effectively become an ingredient in the recipe for most, if not all, startups. So when we look at investments from the Arizona Fund perspective, we make sure to understand how AI is playing a role in any investment that we do. 
And importantly, if AI is not in part of the pitch, we want to understand why that's the case, and we want full reassurance as to how a competitor can come along and figure out a way to build something with the AI ingredient. Because I think what's going to happen is that AI is going to become a ubiquitous mm. ingredient in all startups going forward. And again, it's not going to be the same in realm. It's just going to be helping relatively rote, mundane tasks get done more efficiently. And I think that's a reality that I think a lot of us, at least on the investor side, were surprised by how quickly this has come about. But it is very real. Yeah, I think you know AI is definitely really of a high topic right now. So we also want to ask you a bit about how do you manage risk, you know, especially when it comes to you know um, technologies which a lot of people are looking at. Yeah, so the venture model is, is you know it, it it's very different for most asset classes. So you have a portfolio theory. You're undoubtedly going to have some zeros. You probably have some middling outcomes, but the way that you pay for your investment approach is that your winning investments really need to win. And this goes back to my comment that I made earlier, is that you can't think small if you want venture capital money. Because in order for me to make money and for my LPs to make money and for me to be able to raise my next fund, I need to have outsized return. Very true indeed. Um, we have come to the last segment and it's something we, we want to ask you because you are an independent film investor and director. Yeah, and I think that is really interesting. We saw some of the films that you made. It's very um, you know, in- inspiring. So would you tell us a bit you know, how did you get into the film industry and um, yeah, tell us more. Sure. So we actually, our, our latest film is in theaters, at least in the US, called Memory. Uh, Jessica Chastain, uh, who won the Oscar last year for Best Actress, uh, Peter Sarsgaard, uh, actually won Best Actor for this film at the Venice Film Festival last September. Uh, so fingers crossed on possible award nominations next week. Um, but to answer your question in terms of how I got involved with the business, I went to a, a small liberal arts school in upstate New York, Hamilton College. And uh, I got to know a fellow alum of the college named Thomas Tull. And Thomas became very well known in the film business. He had started a production company called Legendary Pictures. And Legendary became very well known for a variety of different films, most notably the Dark Knight series, and then the Hangover series, and Inception, and Pacific Rim, and so forth. So I convinced Peter to put a little bit of money with Thomas in the early days, which is very rare for us, because we're kind of a two-trick pony in the sense that we trade macro and we make private tech investments. So investing in a film company is definitely not in either of those buckets. Uh, but Thomas went on to sell legendary, I mean, Thomas is an amazing macro trader in the sense that he kind of top-tipped the Chinese interest in Hollywood back in, I think, 2017 or thereabouts, 16, and sold the company to Wanda for, I don't know, four and a half, five billion dollars. So it turned out to be a really good investment for us. But Thomas then brought me into the fold earlier. Uh, the first film that he and I did together was called Act of Valor, which was about U.S. Navy SEALs, and we made a few more films together as well. And then I reconnected with some childhood buddies that I'd grown up with. And we've started this production company called High Frequency uh, Entertainment. And we're actually sh- we're shooting three films uh, this quarter. Uh, we're actually shooting one film literally right now in Las Vegas called Showgirls with Pamela Anderson of Baywatch fame and Jamie Lee Curtis and a pretty good cast. So the reason I really like uh, independent film, first of all, it's a very difficult business. Um, and if you had to compare it to venture, my joke to my friends is that it has the same probability of being a zero, but with a much lower ceiling in terms of the positive outcome. It's a very hard business, but what I really like about it is that you know tech and finance, you know, at some point, if you do it for a while, it becomes a bit routine. Not easy, but there's a degree to which it is routine. 
Whereas with film, you truly are making art. And not to sound corny about it, but when you make art, it's very, very difficult. <laughs> wow, amazing. Thank you for sharing um, a lot of interesting insights and stories. You know, I, I think, you know, as I listen to your responses, it's like a condensed version, distilling the insights through the past two or three decades that you've been in entrepreneurship and venture. So that, that's very helpful. We hope you've enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. Before we close, do remember to check out the podcast notes via the link in the episode description. We have for you the entire episode transcript, bite-sized summaries, and a wealth of other resources and content that we're sure you'll love. Also, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please do spread the word and give us a thumbs up. It would help others find the show and mean a lot to us. Thank you for joining us. This is Hot Truths by Vertex. See you next time.